Hello, I'm Tony Hart, and this is my first podcast from Love from New York. This story is called Jimi Hendrix Had No Place Else to Go. Let's call Tony. She should be living in the village by now. That was what my friend Debbie said to my friend Barbara when they came to New York back in the mid-1960s. They called, and we met at the Riv and drank each other, yes, nearly under the table, as old college friends are wont to do. The Riv was the Riviera, Greenwich Village's go-to bar, set smack dab in the middle of the West Village, so you could sit at the windows and watch the town roll by. My favorite story about the Riv is that Hunter Thompson was thrown out of it. And it was in that bar that Lou Reed fired John Cale from the Velvet Underground. And Lee Marvin threw up there. If that isn't fame for a bar, I don't know what is. The Riv had the best jukebox in town, Elvis and the Everly Brothers and Fats Domino. The Riv was home. When people ask me what the village was like in the 1960s, I say paradise. Like so many villagers, I had left my small hometown behind. I didn't fit in, and I knew it. Better to just get out and try my luck elsewhere. One should never be where one does not belong. I landed in New York, the city that will put up with anything, even me. I found a cheap apartment in Greenwich Village, the West Village, in an old tenement building that had an oak doorway and carriage lamps. I lived on the top floor way up in the sky and looked down on the trees and gardens of the brownstones around me. Sometimes when the night drew its cloak over the city, a neighbor stood on a nearby rooftop and played Coltrane on his saxophone. It was a beautiful life. What we villagers had was a sense of freedom, a sense of that which is wild and chaotic, as if the rules had been lifted, the definitions were gone, and it was up to each of us to make up our own lives. We were a bunch of people who lived a lifestyle as crooked as the little village streets, as winding, as confusing, as screwed up. The West Village was like a secret garden, a tiny plot of land between the glass and steel towers of Wall Street and the skyscrapers in Midtown. The architectural style of the village was pure anarchy, a charming hodgepodge of old buildings, a stew of flavors and tastes. A stately row of townhouses sat a block away from a row of tenements 
complete with stoops. Sweet little brownstones with their shutters and flower boxes live next door to weather-beaten wood-framed houses built before the Civil War. Houses you could barely see for the ivy clinging to the walls. There were private mews lit with gas lamps and hidden alleys leading to secret courtyards. The streets were brick and cobblestone, and they were originally cow paths, so they ran in all directions. No rhyme, no reason. 4th Street crosses 11th Street at its corner, and Waverly Place runs into itself. The village was able to keep its pristine beauty for one simple reason. It is built on a swamp. The land beneath the quaint streets is so spongy that tall buildings would simply sink. Washington Square Park, the heart of the village with its huge fountain, a famous destination for folk singers, is built on a mass grave of 20,000 victims of the plague, scarlet fever, whatever diseases ripped through the poor parts of town in the old days. Swamps make good dumping grounds. Village music clubs, just south of the park, occasionally found water seeping in as the creeks underneath them made their presence known. Sometimes the creek does rise. Canal Street was really a canal. Yes, the village survived because it was worthless. If you couldn't build big buildings on it, forget about it. And the village streets that were so subject to flooding you could barely build small buildings? What about those? Simple. Build whorehouses. You didn't need much of a structure for a house of ill repute. And so the four blocks in the southern part of Greenwich Village, the blocks of McDougal and Bleecker Streets, those four small blocks, the old red light district, were the part of town that housed, in chronological order, whorehouses, speakeasies, bars, mafia coffee shops, beatnik poetry cafes, and finally, the clubs that gave us the music that became the bedrock of the counterculture. It was on McDougal and Bleecker that we heard Aretha sing her first songs in New York at the Village Gate. Bob Dylan play his first big gig at Gertie's Folk City. Joni Mitchell strum her guitar for the first time in New York at the Gaslight. The Café O'Gogo and the Bitter End were the stage to anyone with a guitar. In that era, in the 60s in New York, music defined us. It gave us a strong sense of ourselves as a generation. We were the first television kids, American Bandstand and Dick Clark and Your Hit Parade. 
We only had three television channels. That's right, three channels, ABC, NBC, CBS. That was it. There was nothing but TV and the radio and our record players. And that was why rock music was so important for us. It was all we had. Rock and roll was the center of our universe. And in Greenwich Village, we had all those funky clubs, those clubs where the music began. The other thing that New York had was the music business, the big labels, the record companies, always on the lookout for the next big thing they could sell. So those little clubs on the four downtown blocks became audition rooms for the big guys, the money guys. First to get signed to recording contracts were the folk singers, Dylan and Baez, Judy Collins, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Simon and Garfunkel. Then Dylan went electric, the Beatles and the Stones arrived from across the pond, and those four blocks now hosted the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and Cream. Every weekend, it was all about which club will we go to, which concert can we hear. It was all we had. We lived for our music. When Jimi Hendrix came downtown to Greenwich Village, it was because he had no place else to go. Those four little blocks on McDougal and Bleecker were Jimmy's last chance to make it big in the music world. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. Jimi Hendrix was a musician who was one of the best sidemen in the business. He played blues, R&B, Motown, country, soul. He could play it all. In the four years since he got out of the Air Force, Jimmy had played with Little Richard, Ike and Tina Turner, Wilson Pickett, Curtis Knight, Hank Ballard, Joey D, Curtis Mayfield, the Isley Brothers, Sam and Dave, King Curtis, Sam Cooke, and Jackie Wilson, the greatest names in 1960s R&B. All that, and Jimi Hendrix had no money, no job, and no place to live. Jimmy had started to play rock. Nobody in the music world he knew wanted to hear rock and roll. And he loved it so much, he couldn't stop. Jimi Hendrix was in trouble. I used to see Hendrix on the street in the summer of 1966. He was always in a hurry, and he always had his guitar in his hand. No one had ever seen Jimmy without his guitar. We used to laugh about that. Jimmy never put his guitar down, so how did he get laid? 
Well, getting laid was never Jimmy's problem. Jimmy lived with and off women, with any one of a number of women who ever struck his fancy that night. I think the reason that I saw him walking towards McDougal from several different directions was that there were so many women after him. He had to change sleeping quarters every so often to keep them from lining up outside his door. The guy was like a magnet for women. But Jimmy was in love with his guitar, and I mean love. His attachment to his guitar bordered on the pathological, or on the revolutionary, if you prefer. Some people use the word perverted to explain Jimmy's fixation. When he was a kid, I think he had a cigar box guitar. The early blues and country musicians couldn't afford real instruments, so they cut a hole in a cigar box, attached a broom handle, strung it with catgut, and played. At school, Jimmy carried a broomstick around with him and played air guitar all the time. The school counselor was so worried about him, she petitioned the school board to buy him a guitar as a psychological necessity. That woman knew what she was talking about. Jimmy's family life was a disaster. His mom was a girl who loved to party and who died in an alley behind a bar probably from a beating. His dad was a yard man, and he drank. One day he found a ukulele in the garbage. It had one string. He gave it to Jimmy, who loved it. Finally, Jimmy's aunt bought him a real guitar, an acoustic K guitar, and Jimmy played it to shreds. That guitar became his life. He played it until he fell asleep with the guitar on his belly, and he picked it up again when he woke up. He got good enough to play in bands, from a Seattle high school rock band to an R&B group when he was in the Air Force to the Chitlin Circuit around Nashville, and then he toured the country as a sideman. And in every single band, the story was always the same. Jimmy would be hired. He'd play with the group for a while. He got fired. Jimmy refused to follow rules. He just couldn't do it. This was not a man who understood the necessity for rules. In every group, every group, he would get bored playing the same song the same way, and he'd improvise, and he'd get fired. Nothing worked for Jimmy. Nothing.
It was because of Richie Havens that Jimmy's life was finally turned around. Richie heard him playing uptown at a New York club, and he suggested to Jimmy that he audition at a place in Greenwich Village called the Café Wa. That was the, oh, let's be kind here, that was the funkiest club in the village, maybe in all of New York City. They say that the Café Wa started as a garage, but I think it was more primitive than that. I think it started life as a carriage house in a horse barn, because boy, did that place smell. All the clubs stunk, but the Café Wa really stunk. It was kind of dark and subterranean. It still stands on the corner of McDougal Street and Manetta Lane. The legend is that one day, the garage owner found an old sofa that had been thrown out on the street. He hauled it inside the garage, dragged in a bunch of chairs, and put a sign outside that said, Folk Singers Wanted, and they flooded the place. Folk singers would sing anywhere. Richie Havens had been singing at the Café Wa for quite a while, and he told Jimmy to go to the owner, Manny Roth, and ask for an audition. Manny, by the way, was the uncle to David Lee Roth. Jimmy came into the club on a quiet Monday night, talked Roth into listening to him when the regular band went on a break, pulled out his guitar and just flat out destroyed the place. The whole club, everybody working there and everybody sitting there, stopped cold when they heard Jimmy play. They were stunned. They had never heard anyone play like that before. What Jimmy was, was a brilliant guitarist who took all the blues and funk and R&B he knew and turned it into rock. He made sounds on that guitar no one had ever heard before. Cavehua was in shock. Then that shock turned to awe. Jimi Hendrix was about to change rock and roll forever. Roth booked Hendrix on the spot, six days a week, five sets a day, from the time the club opened at 10 a.m. until it closed at 2 a.m. Jimmy got paid very little, and he didn't care. He finally got what he wanted. He got a musical home to develop his style and his songs. Jimmy was used to working in a trio, so he hired two guys to work with him, guitar and bass, and he called his group Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. A couple of rock musicians lived next door to me in the village, and they took me to see Jimmy. They invited me to clubs fairly frequently, as my stint as a fashion model impressed the men, and I could get in any place. I was pretty used to hitting the clubs and hearing friends sing folk music or play in rock bands, but I had never heard anything like Jimi Hendrix. 
He was such a showman. He owned the stage. I've never seen anyone so comfortable being on stage. He had incredible rhythm, so much rhythm he danced to his own guitar. Or maybe he danced with his guitar. I had never seen anyone play that easily. It just flowed out of the man. It roared out of him like hellfire. And Jimmy and his guitar scooped you up and took you with him. Mind you, it was loud. I mean, really loud. Jimmy had a wall of amps behind him. And the sound hit your eardrums and rang in your brain. Listening to Jimi Hendrix was a visceral, primitive, overwhelming experience. You had to either give in to it or get up and leave. And the sounds he got out of that guitar, I didn't know a guitar could sound like that. It was unearthly. He got notes out of that thing that nobody else had ever heard before. His fingers ran up and down that fretboard so fast, and he'd be playing and then sing. He'd use the feedback from an amp as a note in a song. Jimi Hendrix was magic. He took everything he had, his sophistication with chords, his fluid sense of rhythm, his ability to use sound effects, the sheer speed at which he could play, and all of that together does not explain the power of his songs. Jimmy simply had a head for music that none of us can imagine. I think there was a reason that as a teen, when he got his first guitar, he slept with it on his chest. His guitar and his heart became one. What a show, what a show. And John Hammond Jr., who was playing down the block at the Cafe O'Gogo, heard Jimmy and asked him to sit in with him. And the Rolling Stones and the Animals showed up. And Chess Chandler, the bass player for the Animals, decided that he wanted to manage Jimmy. And Chess took him to England, and Jimmy became the superstar he always knew he could be. Jimmy didn't last long. He had four years of superstardom, and then he was gone. When you shine that brightly, you can burn out quickly. But Jimmy got what he wanted. Jimmy had come down to Greenwich Village to find himself, just like the rest of us.